You're listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 75. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with Marcus Anderson, former NFL player and defensive rookie of the year, where he talks about how his warrior mindset prepared him for life after football and led him to solve ecological problems that impact the human race. There is so much more to know about this athlete-turned-entrepreneur, so get ready to experience the journey of Marcus's road to greatness. Hey, Marcus, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing today, Grant? I'm doing fantastic. I'm having a great morning, and I'm really excited to talk to you and get inside your mindset as a former NFL player, just kind of understand your journey, how you got prepared for practices and games. And then we're going to talk about something that's really serious, um, I believe, that exists for every athlete, and that's transitioning out of sport. And we all have to come to that, that moment in our lives. And you have a really cool story as far as you know, how you transitioned out of football and what you're doing now. So I can't wait to learn a little bit more about what you're doing and, and having you share that with my listeners. Wonderful. I'm ready. I'm really excited to be on your show. All right. Well, let's get started. Let's talk about uh, mental toughness. So what does mentally tough mean to you? You know, mentally tough, um, you know, the first really word that comes to mind when I think about mentally tough is resilience. You know, um, to be mentally tough, um, you're going to make mistakes, you know, and mistakes are actually really good things. Um, You know, I think what separates you know, some of the people that can actually use those mistakes as almost markers and um, creative points or points of transition are those ones that can be resilient, uh, ones that can take what they, what they learn from that, uh, digest it, process it, and really start to take the cues of what is next. You know, what steps do I need to take next in order to get better? Um, and that resiliency, you know, especially in sports, um, as well as in life, is something that can really carry you beyond the threshold. So, you know, I think being, um, you had a quote in your book called, you know, bend like bamboo, you know, and the bamboo that bends is stronger than the oak that resists, you know. So if you're able to kind of get to a point where you can bend but not break, um, then I think that sets up for a really strong foundation for what you're trying to do. Beautiful. And that's exactly when, when you were talking about resiliency. I mean, that's anytime I hear that word, I always think bending and not breaking. And, and as an athlete, and even in life, we're surrounded by emotional hurricanes all the time, whether if it's inside of us or outside of us. There's, every day we're faced with it, whether it's small or, or large. But the goal is to sit in the middle of that hurricane, right, where, they, where it's calm and breathe through it and bend. And, uh, and I think that's very beautiful. And I think it's awesome that you brought up... Um, failure, like having a relationship to fail. I mean, it's, it's okay. That's all the greats had to fail. Um, and I, and I love this, this statement of, cause we think failing is, is downward, right? Emotionally sure. downward. Well, if we know we're going to go up to go to be successful, then we have to fail up. So sure. I think it's great that you brought that up. Um, it's, it's something I talk about all the time when I'm working with athletes and coaches and teams. So when you think about your, your athletic career or in life, all right, I know you're going back, uh, you know, 30, 40 years here, but can you share a time where you, you had to be mentally tough? Um, yeah, sure. You know, there's plenty of times. I mean, there's a, there's a myriad of times where, you know, I had to be tough. Um, you know, my first actual 
athletic sport was gymnastics. Um, and, you know, doing that from actually age six to actually 13, um, you learn a lot about your body. You know, you push yourself, you know, and you're bending and you're stretching and you're always trying to become a little bit more flexible. You're always trying to become a little bit more resilient, actually, from a physical standpoint. So, you know, when you're trying to figure out your body, you're growing, you know, and you're stretching and you're flipping and doing all these things, you really learn a lot about yourself. Um, and, you know, that's where it ultimately started. But then as you move up the ranks uh, in playing sports, um, you know, guys, you know, especially in America, have been taught, you know, that we come from a competitive culture. Um, and nobody is really going to give you anything because there's so many opportunities, you know, in being great in America. Uh, if you are great, you know, there's a lot of rewards that you get. You know, there's a lot of downfalls that come your way, you know, as far as targets on your back. But, you know, you also have to understand that there's, you know, a lot of people that are always trying to compete, you know, with you, uh, against you. Um, and then also there's cues from yourself. You know, you want to be better. Um, so I remember a time, and I can even just take it from with my own family, is that, you know, my sister, she was actually an Olympic track athlete. And um, I remember, you know, up until I was 14, she was always faster than me. You know, and I really just couldn't get this out of my mind. And it was really kind of like, am I ever going to get to a point where, you know, I can excel, you know, beyond, um, you know, being a young man and really kind of come into my own as a, as a man. Um, and I think I had to be tough around them because, you know, we have these egos when we're young that it's not only about what we think about ourselves, but it's also about how society thinks about us. And, you know, sometimes in America, society is always pushing boys, you know, to be the best, to be great, to be, you know, um, better than the next person next to you. Um, and at this point in your life, you know, you're really thinking about how can I be tougher? You know, how can I man up? You know, is a really good um, phrase that a lot of people use. Um, and that kind of sits with you all the way through until I got to the NFL. You know, be tough, you know, be competitive, you know, always be great. Um, and I really took on that moniker, you know, while I was actually playing. So, you know, I think it was a, a central um, theme in my life, you know, as I was playing sports. But as I transitioned out of sports, what being tough meant actually had a totally different meaning. And we can probably get into that later, but... Um, you know, I, I, there was been plenty of times to answer your question. You know, there's been plenty of times where I felt like I had to be tough, uh, whether it's fighting through an injury or it's, you know, beating out a man for a position, you know, whether it's, um, you know, identifying how to go to school and play sports at the same time. There's a lot of opportunities where, you know, just crying or uh, putting your head down is, is really not uh, acceptable. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm with you. When, when I played, uh, you know, I had a I had a, almost a full time job and go to, went to school and played football. And uh, just right there, I just I can feel the stress. <laughs> I, you know, I, I can I can feel the pressure. You know, uh, but you know that it made me it, it um you know sitting in the fire and dealing with all that and whatever it is, you just it just makes builds character. Um, that was one thing that I loved about football is that it gave me so much as a person, like the whole game, like being a quarterback and being a leader, that, that gave me a whole set of tools, but just the game itself, um, set me up for life, I believe. So mm -hmm. when, when you, sure. you know, when you think about your, your love for the game, 
you know, when you think about your why, like what is your, what was your why for football? What, what motivated you as a football player? I mean, to be honest, um, I wanted to fully reach the potential of the God's talent that was given to me. Um, you know, I never, like my biggest fear was being a waste um, and not utilizing, you know, what God has given me, you know, because there's certain gifts that he gives to each of us and they're all unique in their value. Um, but, you know, for me, you know, while I was growing up, I wanted to figure out what those actual talents were and I wanted to push those to the limit. You know, I didn't want to look back on my life and say, you know, I could have, should have, would have done these things. You know, if I'm here, I'm using my youth as, you know, a platform to expose God's talents, um, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to push that to as far as I can. Um, and I just wanted to be the best, you know, it was never really a competition between someone else. I wanted to prove markets that, to markets that, you know, I could push myself beyond measures that I even thought myself could actually go. And I think that's what really motivated me throughout my career. Did you always have that NFL dream? Was was that always kind of the, the ultimate outcome goal or is it just being the best you can be and, and working with the talents that you have? You know, I mean, my dream was always to solve problems and to solve challenges, no matter what those were. And, you know, as I was younger, um, I think I'm living my dream now. Uh, more than, say, just being a sportsman. But sports was a great conduit to fulfilling my dreams uh, because it pushed me mentally, it pushed me physically, and it pushed me spiritually. And that almost gave me the armor and the tools, you know, for fulfilling the dreams that I'm living out now. Um, you know, sport was something that was very transitional. You know, I knew that if I – I got to a point in my in my career where I knew if I put my best foot forward and, you know – you know, God forbid that I got injured or anything, um, you know, that I could succeed, you know, and I think that getting to, you know, having that mindset where you can already visualize those things and see them happening uh, is quite important. You know, the power of manifestation is, is very real. Um, and we set those things in motion and we do the steps and we put in the work to get to where we're going. And then dreams become reality. Um, so, you know, it was a dream for me to be as successful as possible in sport and in football. Uh, but I think the ultimate goal was, you know, to learn as much as I possibly can, solve as many challenges as I can uh, internally and externally and and move forward into, you know, what I'm doing now. Yeah, I love that problem solver. It's I, I hear this a lot. My wife always, she's like, you know, always asking me, what problems did you solve today? And it's probably the last couple of years since I've been doing this full time. It's one of those things. It's like, um, but in a good way, it's, not, it's like uh, solving problems. It's like, if you're not solving problems, like, what are you doing? And and it's okay. Sometimes you don't have to solve every problem, but, but having cool. that part of your fabric, your mindset is, um, is pretty cool. And I like that, you know, and when, when you think about your mindset overall, like how would you categorize your, your mindset as a football player and did it evolve over, over time? Sure. Um, I think my mindset as a football player was fearless. Hmm. You know, um, I knew two things. I knew if I prepared well, then I could perform well. Um, so everything was always in my preparation. And if I felt prepared before I got out there on the field, whether it be practice or the game, I felt fearless. I felt effortless. I felt like floating. I felt uh, this calm, you know, where everything just slowed down. Um, and I always had this kind of mantra where, 
you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's me or you, and it's not going to be me, you know? So, um, you, you know, when, when, you know, when you're on the field, it's, it's, it's as close to, um, combative warfare as, as we get without live ammunition, you know, but the ammunition is our bodies. Um, and there's a lot of strategy that goes into it. There's a lot of heart that goes into it. There's a lot of grit that goes into it, but just being fearless. I think that, you know, once I was spiritually connected where, you know, I said my prayers, you know, I did what I needed to do. I prepared pr- appropriately. You know, I was just out there having fun, you know, floating and just really getting after it, trying to get into that flow state. I love it. And it's just, you know, like you said, preparation. Um, and I know that you've heard this, prep, you know, your preparation is your separation. And mm. and I love it because uh, when you're prepared, you are confident. When you're prepared, you're you're separating yourself from you know, negative thoughts and the what ifs and you're separating yourselves from the competitors. You're like, you're, like you said, you're, you're getting into the flow state. And, and I love it that you brought up fearless because man, I, I think when you play this beautiful, violent game uh, and I was a quarterback, like there, to me, I felt like the things that I had to do to get prepared, I went through my routine for years. I had the same routine and I, I felt fearless. I mean, as a quarterback, I mean, I, I know you have to have that fearless mindset when you're, you know, playing defense or any other position, but I mean, especially in your position, linebackers, you know, the the defensive line, like you have to be fearless, and you just do. And 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 I this I think this is really important because when you play this game, like we get so wrapped up into it. Um, sometimes athletes have a hard time separating who they are from from the athlete. And so playing football is what you do, but it's not who you are. And getting kids right. to, to, to adopt that or adopt that mindset, it's it's hard because, it, like, right now it's just, you know, at high school, it's just school and football for the most part if they're playing other sports. But, you know, so when we talk about the warrior mindset and mm-hmm. what could you describe, like, when you let go of who you are, like Marcus, you let go of who you are and you get into this fearless football player, was there something that you turned into when you got onto the field? Sure. Yeah. Marcus Aurelius. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I love it. (laughs) To be perfectly, you know, honest, you know, football really felt like, you know, once I saw that movie Gladiator, I was like, you know, this is what modern day gladiating is. Um, You know, you walk into this arena and you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people chanting your name and your team, wearing your colors, wearing your jerseys, rooting on for you, wanting to be entertained. Um, this is the closest thing that you get to, you know, uh, to Rome, you know, where you're in the Colosseum and you're playing football in front of thousands of people and there's bears and lions and tigers that are trying to rip your head off. Um, so, you know, but there's nothing more glorious than that moment as well, because you internalize all those things. I remember times where I was on the football field where I couldn't even see the crowd. I couldn't even see anybody else except for the man that I was focused on. And so it's this spectrum that you go through when you're playing football to this very encompassing macro level where you feel the energy of everything. And then you have this very micro aspect of it where you're channeling all of that energy into the focus that's needed in that moment. Um, So, you know, just being a gladiator in those moments where it's life or death and you want to maybe, you know, maximize what is called upon you in that moment and every moment seems like an eternity in those seconds. So, you know, being able to, you know, almost bend and stretch time in a way 
is really, you know, what I can relate it to. And just that gladiator mindset when you step out on that field uh, is really what I tried to possess when I was when I was in, when I was playing. And was there a, a cue at all? Like for me, it was um, as soon as I stepped on the green field. So even when I like if it was warm ups. That was when, like, you know, I would still get into my groove. I'd go through my routines in, in the locker room and stuff. I'd get relaxed. But as soon as I stepped on the green, it was like, it was like music started to play in my head. It was like, it was like my soundtrack started to, to, to come on. And mm-hmm. that was my, and I did that for practice. So every time I had a really cool quarterback, um, the year before I started over at Chabot Junior College, um, he was incredible, and Rick Winter, and he said, like, he said, I was stressing out about, like, trying to, you know, manage life and school and work, and he goes, man, when you, when you, when you go to practice, I want you to think about homework, bills, school, when you're in the locker room, go ahead and start thinking about that stuff, too, but as soon as you step on that green field, that's when you commit and immerse yourself to the game, because none of that mm-hmm. stuff that you're thinking about and stressing doesn't help you as a as a quarterback. The team doesn't need you to have that in your head, but you need to learn how to let that go and have a, a cue or a trigger. Sure. So, and it just yeah, it, and, and yeah. So that's what helped me. On that. I, no, just to piggyback on that, you know, I think that's where a lot of people. It's hard for them to make the distinction of what I do and who I am. Mm. You know, being able to cut that off when you're off the field. Is, is very transitional. It's almost like, say, you know, you go to war, you know, you in that in those war zone where it's life or death, and then you come home and you have to have this totally different personality or the way that you approach life. You know, it's, it's very similar to those things. So I think that you brought up an interesting point of that transition of what mindset you have on the field and who you are as a person off the field. Yeah. And, was it easy for you to let go of that warrior mindset? So when you got done with the game, because there's some there's some players that have a hard time with it. They they because it's a rush, it's a high, and they they it's part of their identity. And and I've had friends that worked with UFC fighters back in the day, and because when you're going in, into that octagon and you're you're literally gonna lay somebody out, they had a hard time. Um, well, this is just a general statement, but there were some fighters having a hard time because they were so jacked up and they were so amped that the way that they dealt with to come down, it was to do more drugs and to do and be with girls and the partying because it was an extension of that high. And mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that every athlete goes through that, but but because football, there is such an intensity about it. Um, was it easy for you to transition out of that warrior mindset and getting back to, to Marcus? Um, You know, it was a challenge for, say, the good part of, you know, some of my college career and and, you know, the early part of the NFL, you know, but what I felt, it wasn't more of kind of like going to drugs and women and things of that nature, but it was I just wasn't fulfilled, you know, Um, like like my heart felt like, okay, I'm really good at this sport. You know, I'm doing well. I love the game, um, but I know there's something beyond this. You know, and I think that's what I was really searching for. I think that's what I was really trying to grasp onto is that, okay, you know, everybody looks at me in a certain way of being, you know, this kind of football star player. But I look at myself as that I want to be something beyond that. Um, And I think that was the aspect of me, you know, trying to explore or be curious or really try to activate that part of my mind where I wanted to push myself even beyond sports. 
Um, you know, so even in the off season when I was in the NFL, I tried to work on different types of business deals or write a children's book or, you know, just do something creative that would keep my mind active. Mm. Um, you know, that was the biggest, um, I guess, realization for me was how was I going to keep continue to keep my mind active um, outside of, of, of practice and, and the games. I love it. I love it. So this is a, a two-part question. Uh, so when you reflect on your football career, uh, so your whole career, what was the most important mental win? And what was your most mental fail? Uh, you know, the biggest mental win, or let's say, let's, let's, let's go, the biggest mental fail for me um, Let me think. I would have to say, you know, this is a good one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I just don't want to give you kind of this cardboard answer. You know, I want to really be mindful about, about I, when my biggest mental fail was. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel you. Uh, yeah. Um, was there, um, what about a mental win? Was there something like because you were prepared or because maybe you bounced back from adversity within a game, you got your mind right that you actually showed up in the moment? Was there, was any of anything stand out at all um, throughout your career? Yeah, so you know what? Um, I think we can get both of those in, in one. You know, the biggest mental fail probably for me um, was, you know, I got drafted to the Green Bay Packers. You know, I'm playing, I'm playing quite well and, you know, through training camp. And, um, you know, it comes to the last preseason game and I pull my hamstring. Um, and I think, you know, at that point, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. It's like, you know, even though I got drafted pretty high, you know, you don't know if you're going to make the team. You know, there's a lot of things that you've always wanted to dream about, you know, playing opening day, you know, in the NFL. And, you know, from that from that aspect, you know, I really had to dig deep to really be mentally prepared uh, to walk into, you know, game one and week one where I wasn't actually suited up. Um, and I was bummed, you know, about this. I wanted to be, you know, with I, I felt like I put in a lot of hard work to get here and I wanted to play. Um, and, you know, so I sat out two games. But then our third game was actually in Detroit. And the first play that I actually got in was really a mental win for me um, was uh, Joey Harrington actually threw a ball. It went sky high into the, 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 the rafters pretty much. And then it came down. I intercepted it and ran it 72 yards for a touchdown. Wow. Um, and this is the first play of, the, uh, of, of my career, my NFL career. And I think just that mental toughness of not getting down on myself um, and, you know, turning a mental fail, you know, where I was really kind of just, Badgering myself into, you know, staying resilient, staying strong, um, really helped me through that moment. And then from that moment where, I, you know, I got that touchdown, I felt like I was ready to play, you know, and that was my opening to uh, to my NFL career. Man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I definitely want to get into what it was like when you got drafted, um, but I, because I want to tag on to what you're saying, just, just for my listeners, because, you know, um, when I look back at my career, when the mo the moment that defined me, that's what I think, defined me like where I showed up and I just put the team on my back, 
it wasn't just my physical talents. It was because I was mentally prepared and I was mentally dialed in. And also the, the worst fail was because I was mentally not there. I was not mentally prepared. And, and I'm vulnerable about this story, but I, I remember real quick, I was at Sonoma, playing for Sonoma State, playing against Cal State Northridge. I hadn't practiced all week because I had 103 temperature. And, uh, and I decided to play. And because I went into that game, you know, back then, I don't think the flu game, the Michael Jordan flu game was, um, he went through that yet. But when I was going, I thought because I wasn't 100%, I wasn't going to play good. And so mm-hmm. now that I know this, you don't, you don't have to feel good to play to perform well. But that game, I was four for 12. I threw four interceptions and two of them were pick six. Mm. Yes. That hurts. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> it does. And you know, what's crazy about it is the next game we came back, we won and I had a, I had a pretty good game, no interceptions, but um, you know, good percentage, but uh, a couple touchdowns, but it um, is how I bounced back from it. But to me, that's part of my story, and I share that because it's like, how do you bounce back from a, a mental fail like that? Sure. Sure. I mean, and, you, and, and I think it gets back to our opening statement where we're talking about resiliency, you know, and having faith and continuing to believe in yourself. Um, you know, because when you get to those levels where you're playing college and professional, you know, nobody's going to do the work for you. Um, so having that internal like compass of where you are having that self-actualization to say, you know what, I'm not feeling my best, you know, and I'm not playing my best, you know, but to say that this isn't necessarily defining me as a person or as an athlete and being able to have that resiliency to back back, um, and come back strong. I think it's really, um, you know, a testament to the hard work and and the mindset of, of how you actually approach the game. Big time. A hundred percent. So let's go. Let's go to that moment. I'm probably just an incredible moment for you when you got drafted by the Packers in the third round. What was that like? What was that whole experience like? Man, it was it was almost an out of body experience. Man, it really was uh, something like a culmination of just years and years of hard work. Um, you know, and I just saw how proud my family was. You know, of me, and I think that's what really stuck with me. Is just. You know, because I knew personally that, you know, there's a lot of work that you do that people don't see, um, that when it comes together to where it's something that they can actually touch and it's tangible and it's real, it almost feels surreal, you know, and um, just to kind of see how proud, you know, my sisters were and my parents were uh, and my friends, um, you know, that really made me proud, you know, and it made it worth it, Um, you know, all of those you know, days where you had to run in the off season and lift weights and, you know, go to class and, you know, really kind of be at the top of your game um, to have that just come together and have them call your name and just to have an NFL team want you, you know, at any given time, there's only about 1500 people that are playing, you know, the, the, the number one sport in, in almost uh, besides soccer in the world, um, you know, playing that on the main stage where, you know, this is the National Football League, this is the big boys camp. Um, and to be selected was really an honor, uh, but it was also an accomplishment personally as well as for my family. Wow. How different is it going from college and just the, just the play, the, the expectations, the pressure? How different is it when you're at UCLA versus going to the Packers? So you know what I, I mean? It's it's really um, I would have to say that the transitions are not as hard as 
I imagined them to be, you know, and the thing was is that when I was going from high school to college, I was like, oh, you know, this is going to be a large transition. You know, this is going to be something that, um, you know, it's going to take me, you know, weeks or months, you know, to kind of get under my belt. But when I was when I was there, you know, I think I get back to this fearless mentality where I wanted to compete. I wanted to get better. So these were opportunities. I looked at these as opportunities to shine. Um, and with these opportunities, I felt like I belonged, you know, that, um, and I think it gets back to the preparation. I felt like I prepared for these moments. I felt like I put in the work and let's see where it actually lays right now. Um, so I remember when I was going into UCLA, uh, before that, my, uh, coach actually in high school, we would actually have a lot of camps where NFL guys would come back. You know, I went to Long Beach Poly. Uh, which has the the most recruits into the NFL of any high school in the nation. So what a lot of guys would actually do during the summer was come back to Poly and be coached by a a coach by the name of Don Norford. Um, And he was probably one of the best coaches that I've ever had because he saw me as an individual, but he also saw me as an athlete. Um, And to be, you know, embraced and encompassed in work, you know, during the summer with these NFL athletes, when I actually got to the, to the to college, it was a very easy transition, um, but there was a lot of anxiety around it because you just don't know. You know, you don't know if these guys are going to be bigger, faster, stronger to where you can't compete. But once you get in there and you you know kind of put your toe in the water, you're like, wow, this is pretty warm. Let me let me jump on in. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you were you were also um, a finalist for Rookie of the Year. How was mm-hmm. how was that whole process? Yeah, it was amazing. You know, um, I think, you know, once again, to have, you know, Green Bay actually get behind me uh, so well. I think this was the first year that they were having the Pepsi Rookie of the Week uh, awards. And I think I won it like four four times, uh, four or five times. And it was actually from votes from fans. Um, so, you know, to to have, you know, be recognized in that manner uh, was really just kind of a, a solidification solidification of all of the hard work that that had been put in, you know, and then it's also that, you know, people are, are taking notice of, of, of the work. Um, I think that was really uh, motivational for me that, you know, I'm not just playing for myself, but I'm also paying for people that support me. Um, so having that and being recognized, you know, in this, um, you know, this pool of great talent is, is it was really honorable for me and it really motivated me to just kind of give my best at all times now even though you were like a finalist for like rookie of the year but didn't and correct me if i'm wrong but did you win defensive rookie of the year i did yeah i did yeah and actually out of that the finalist i was the only actually defend, defensive player that was that was on that panel wow. um so, you know, it, it, it was it was really exciting. You know, this is when Jeremy Shockey and Clinton Portis, you know, and guys of that nature were coming out, and I had known them from the Senior Bowl. Um, but to be sitting on stage with these guys and to really um, push myself that like that, it was really honorable. And I think, you know, I got that mindset from my sister. Um, you know, growing up with an Olympic athlete, you know, she was an Olympian at, at, at a young age, but you know, the way that she approached things was always mentally focused, you know, whether it was education or athletics. She also, she always had this, this very laser focus, um, 
And I think I tried to emulate that in certain ways when I was going through football. And, um, you know, I just did the work. You know, I didn't really think about the accolades. They were cool, you know, if they came, but I just really focused on doing the work. Um, and when I saw that I actually did the work, that's when, you know, these awards and things of that came. Um, so they were really second nature to just doing the work for me. And was your sister more than just a sister? Was she um, more or less a mentor to you? Best friend and mentor, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. I have same thing, you know, uh, brother and sister, same way. Uh, brother was uh, one of those guys that just would question me if, if I could be good enough. And then I, when I showed him I was good enough, when I was on varsity I was, as a sophomore in high school, he was like, okay, all right, you're good. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but he was always there to love me and to hold me and to push me. Um, and that bond got stronger. That moment when I was a sophomore in varsity, that moment on, him and I just got tighter ever since. Sure. And that support system is, is, is helpful. It's everything, to be perfectly honest, because there's a lot of times, you know, whether on or off the field, we need a mentor. You know, we need somebody that we can confide in um, as a confidant and, um, and, and really see us for who we are. You know, because sometimes when we're athletes, people see what they want to see. They see us as the athlete. But, you know, these are the people that play tetherball with you on the playground. You know, you know, these are the people that really know who you are, what foods you like, you know, how you, your sleeping patterns, you know, and things of that nature. So to be able to have a mentor that's that close and to have somebody, you know, kind of say you've arrived, it, it's really, um, you know, something that means a lot. Definitely. Big time. Pressure. Uh, I love asking this question because, especially when I'm asking this question to athletes that are in high school, because 90, 95% of the time, when I say, what's your relationship with pressure? Is it positive or negative? Most of the time, general statement, they say it's negative. Now, mm -hmm. I can only imagine when you, as you've progressed through your career and you've had to deal with all different types of pressure, what was your relationship with, with pressure? Did you thrive and embrace it? Or was there times where it was difficult to deal with you know I, I really I really enjoyed pressure to be perfectly honest because that that knew that that meant that there was a breakthrough that could happen you know um if there's pressure if there's pressure if there's no pressure then you're not really pushed you know but when the pressure comes and and to be able to harness that pressure and move forward in an elegant way um or to move beyond that um it really helped me out um and, um, you know, being able to make that winning tackle or that, you know, make that sack or to make a, a big play when it's needed, you know, those are the things that separate good from great, you know, in those pressure moments. So in order to get that, you have to be under some pressure. Um, so I really, I, I feel like I thrived under pressure a lot. And I think, you know, even to this day, um, I like to learn new things. I like to expand my mind. I like to push my body. Um, and I think the pressure turns into opportunity uh, when you look at it like that. Yeah, I love it. Pressure and opportunity. Uh, I just talked to an athlete where he was like, man, I use pressure as motivation. And uh, sure. so that's cool. And, you know, and I always bring up the idea of, you know, if you like diamonds, well, that's that's how we make diamonds is pressure. So, um so I love that. Now, before we, we get out of your mindset as an athlete and your journey as a, a former NFL player, 
Um, I do want to bring this up because I want to share with my listeners about a month ago or so I met Marcus and I watched him speak at this conference and he was he blew me away along with the whole um, the whole conference was blown away with his with his uh, topic he was talking about and but he did throw up a picture and this picture was him just intercepting a ball from Tom Brady the, the greatest quarterback of all time and I, when he was talking about that moment there was a there was a switch there was a brightness there was a, a light that lit up when he shared that moment and and because I was there in, in the audience ex- experiencing that you know, can you share with my my listeners like what was that like to pick to to have that experience and now this memory of of intercepting the best quarterback ever mhm and you, you know, when this actually happened, it was in slow motion. And the reason why it was in slow motion was because I was prepared. Um, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed was film study. Um, you know, when we had, when we were there, every day after practice, I would just be in there for hours and hours. I would take, you know, CDs home, and I would watch, you know, just film upon film upon film. And there was this formation that they ran. It was, a, it was a twin double tight. And I, they ran the same play like two or three times out of that formation. And I was like, I already know it's coming. I know it's coming before <laughs> the play even, even asked. And I was dropping down in the box, getting my run support, you know, and that's where I was actually a blindside to, to Tom, where I was in the box. But then I knew that there was a double cross that was actually coming. So, you know, I made my, my plant, my pivot, and I just went to a spot. And while I was getting to that spot, I saw him release. And I was like, this is mine. I was like, I'm going to get this. Because, you know, when you actually are prepared and you, you know, digest all of the things that you need to digest as far as, you know, film study, game study, game plan, all those different things, when you're out there on the field, everything is in slow motion. Um, so, when I actually made the pick, you know, he was actually the person who tackled me and he was like, Marcus, you know, you got one, you got me, you know, <laughs> and, you know, for him to say that, um, and I actually saw him in the off season when we were in Vegas, uh, after that, you know, we talked about that play. Um, and, you know, I, I told him the same thing. He was like, you know, when you guys ran that double tight, you know, this is how it was, you know, this is what you guys ran. And he was like, you know, you're going to go a long way in this, in this league because, um, as they say, and as you say, you know, it is 90% mental. Um, and I think that, you know, if you can get that mental aspect down and that learning aspect down, then, um, yeah, you can have moments like those. That's beautiful. That's awesome. And I love it that you can go back to that play and just and break it down, like, so accurately. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Now, was there, outside of that pick, I mean, obviously it's Tom Brady, but was there any other, like, pick in your professional career that was just like memorable or was that the one that stood out the most? That one was good, but I think my most memorable one was the first one that I got uh, at Lambeau Field. Mm. You know, uh, growing up, you see these guys do the Lambeau leap and uh, I, I, I wanted some of that, you know, but playing defense, your odds of actually getting that done uh, aren't that high, you know, but uh yeah, once again, we were playing the Detroit Lions, and uh, I saw a play where the fullback went to the flat. Um, I jumped it, and I was about 20, 30 yards out, and I sprinted to the, to the goal line, you know, dove over the, over the goal line, 
And then, you know, I just saw the sea of green and yellow just cheering, and I had to go get some. I, you know, I ran and I got into, you know, I jumped up on the banister and I got into the crowd. You know, they were patting me. And I think that was probably one of the greatest moments of my NFL career was that moment right there because it's, it, it was like being in, in full engagement with the crowd uh, wow. from something that you did on the field. Hmm. Wow. I, seriously, I, I just got chills because yes, you've seen I – mean, we see it all the time. The Lambeau Leap, we've seen that. We've seen other, other stadiums and teams do the same thing. But, I mean, it seems – I believe you guys are the ones that originated it, but – it just—it's always cool to see, but then to have someone explain that feeling—it um, just is so intimate, and it's—it's it's, and it's real, but it's a really cool, cool story, and a cool memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about the moment where you you made the decision to walk away from football. You know what was what was this what was the the decision what was the process like and and was it easy was it a hard transition or was it a positive transition um it was all the above um but the the thing was is that you know when i played the game um i played with passion you know and i think that in order to play such a beautiful violent game like that you have to be passionate about it you know as soon as you lose that passion for it um, there's so there's a plethora of things that can go wrong. You know, you can get injured. Um, you could be a liability to you yourself and, and your teammates. Um, and I think, you know, as I got into my NFL career, um, I felt more and more like a commodity rather than a player. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fine because, you know, they're giving you a check, you know, but, um, you know, I remember the GM at the time when I was with the Oakland Raiders, you know, he kind of came up to me after practice. He was like, Marcus, you can play in this league as long as you want to do, but you got to stop doing the things that you're doing off the field, you know, which I felt at that time were not affecting my performance, you know, writing a children's book or doing business deals of that nature um, was not affecting my play, you know, but when he said that for some reason, you know, the passion for the game actually just like left my body, mm-hmm. you know, and um, that's at the first time where I felt like a piece of meat, you know, um, where I couldn't be authentically Marcus. Um, and that wasn't okay for me. Um, and I think at that moment, uh, was the beginning of my transition out of, of football. Um, yeah, I still played for a couple of years. Well, actually about a year and a half after that. Um, but, you know, serendipitously when I was in, um, in playing with the Broncos in Denver, um, I met a mentor of mine. Uh, his name was Dirk Van Berkel. And he was actually doing an aviation project out of the Centennial Airport there. Um, and he came up to me one day and he was like, hey, you know, would you like to have dinner with me and my buddies? Um, and I was like, sure. Um, so we go over there, we actually have dinner. And during this conversation, you know, they're talking about all these different countries that they've been to delivering cargo airplanes or, or cargo itself or passenger uh, aircraft. And one guy had been to like 140 countries. And I was just blown away by his ability to just be re- real, you know, and yeah. to be authentic in a way that I was like, do people like this even exist? You know, he sounds like a modern day Magellan or something, you know. Um, <laughs> But, you know, they really took me under their wing. Um, And every day after practice, once I got my work done, you know, I would go over there and I would converse with them. And we created a really good bond uh, over time. 
And this was almost like the first person that saw me beyond just being a football player that really kind of saw how expansive my mind was and was able to, you know, help me explore that. So, um, you know, when Derek actually, you know, kind of started integrating me into some of his, his dealings in the aviation world, um, you know, that next year when, um, you know, there was a couple of teams trying to sign me, you know, I talked to my agent and uh, I was like, you know, thanks, Peter, for everything that you've done, but I think I'm going in a different direction. Um, and after about a 15-second uh, awkward pregnant silence, you know, he was, you know, quite upset, you know, and um, but I felt a relief, you know. I, I really felt like my shoulders loosened up. I felt like, you know, my my mind was clear. Uh, there was no anxiety around the decision. Uh, it was just something that I knew I had to do. Um, I didn't have all the details, you know, of what actually was going to happen after that, but I did have a direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was willing to put my faith in that direction and uh, the faith that, you know, my mentor had in me um, to, to make that transition. You know, you talk about this this different direction after football. I know you were drawn to international socially responsible business, which sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. And you're inspired mm-hmm. by Paul Hawk and his book, Natural Capitalism. What... Tell me a little bit about, you know, why you were drawn into that direction and what was the, the drive that made you head into this direction? Sure. You know, I think it gets back to the, the part of me that's a problem solver, you know, and um, when I actually read Paul Hawkins' book, Natural Capitalism, um, he had so many solutions to some of the problems that I had been thinking about since I was a young boy. Um, how to make the world a better place how do you actually live, you know, ecologically sound and circular lifestyle, um, how to create an eco village, you know, to where people could actually thrive and be successful, um, you know, almost like, um, uh, you know, what is the opportunity or what are the tools that you actually need um, in order to uh, make sure that everybody is prosperous in the community. And when I read his book and saw that there was enough resources on this planet to make sure that everybody could live a healthy, successful life um, while the planet actually thrived, uh, that just blew me away. And this was a man that had dedicated his whole life as an activist, as a novelist, as an inventor, um, that you know was actually one of those guys that, is this guy real? Um, so I had to have a conversation with them. And, you know, once I had a conversation with them, um, it just opened my eyes to saying, you know, this is the type of person that I, I really want to be. And this is the type of energy that I want to leave and the type of legacy that I want to leave, um, you, you know, when I, when it's time for me to check out from this dimension. Wow. That's awesome, man. And, I, and I'm only, I'm guessing because of this inspiration and this connection, uh, you allowed you to form this foundation, which is called World Education Foundation. Uh, tell mm-hmm. you know, share with my listeners, like, what is the We Foundation? What is it all about? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it, it started off as you know just a research project. To be perfectly honest, um, you know, during the time that you know after football, I actually traveled around Europe for about ten months. Um, and my mentor was introducing me to a lot of people in the uh, academic space, in the research and development space, the new technology space. Um, and I was learning a lot of really brilliant 
um, you know, pieces of technology or solutions that could actually help the future. And I wanted to be able to articulate what I was learning. So I went back and I got my master's out of Lynn Shopping University uh, in a program called Adult Learning and Global Change. Um, and during this, this time when I was actually writing my thesis, I went traveling throughout South America for about seven months. And I didn't really have an agenda. It was just really to be with the people, to understand, you know, how people in, in, in communities um, uh, in the global south actually, um, uh, you know, lived and, and worked and their communal uh, integrity and things of that nature. I really wanted to dive deep into that. Um, so while I was actually traveling around, um, there was this serendipitous moment where I was in a shared cab with this. Swiss OBGYN, and we started talking about health initiatives and health issues. Um, and before the end of the conversation, she wanted to put me in contact with a gentleman who was doing a food production program in the DR Congo. Um, and I talked to this, this, this gentleman, his name was Alex Petrov, and um, we got to talking and uh, he introduced me to a couple of his social entrepreneurs that he worked with on the ground in the DR Congo. And I spoke with them and he was like, yeah, you know, malaria is the largest issue that we're facing when it comes to health. Um, so, you know, what I did was I created the World Education Foundation as a platform to approach some of these challenges and to almost be almost like this problem-solving hub for challenges that people were facing around the world. So what I did was I gathered some information. I went back to my alma mater at UCLA, and I worked with the School of Public Affairs, um, where I hired a couple of their interns to do some research around malaria um, and we come up, came up with a program that actually helped rural farmers in the DR Congo transport this bark called quinine or quinquina. Um, it has the same properties that are used in tonic water. So Schweppes, you know, uses a lot of this, these properties, this, this quinquina plant. Um, but pro processed in a certain way, it could actually be processed into malaria treatment. So what we did was we set up a supply chain where we helped rural farmers transport this bark into the main city of Bukavu on the east of the DR Congo, and it was processed into malaria treatments. Um, and from there, uh, we were able to create about 400,000 treatments for malaria and create about 110 jobs. Um, and, at, and when this actually happened, um, you know, this is, this is that my aha moment. This was my wow moment where I said, you know what, I can do this for the rest of my life. Um, and over time, what the World Education Foundation actually morphed into was being able to bridge the gap between academic knowledge, technology, and implementation in local communities. Um, so understanding, you know, in, in the academic world, sometimes a lot of information, is, it stays in the academic space, you know, but to move that outside of those ivory towers to where it can actually have and affect real change uh, is something that the World Education uh, Foundation stands for. You know, when we talk about playing a big game, and this is something that I've been focusing on for the last five years, and I feel like I'm I'm playing a, for me a big game. But man, listening to your story, Mike, it's like that's playing a big game. And and I just ask my you know my listeners to just to think about like how big of a game do you want to play, and where's your game at right now? Because just doing what you're doing, man, it's just uh, it's inspiring, and. Um, and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of belief, a lot of grit, resiliency. You know, I can keep on going. So, you know, good on you. That, that's just awesome. Thank you. 
And, and I think, you know, um, also to your listeners, you know, when you play a big game, you know, don't try to get it all accomplished, you know, at one moment, right. you know, really take and be present in the now and take the steps and create the habits that can get you to that big game. You know, it's really about this moonshot, you know, where you say, like, this is the things that I want to create in my life. But then, you know, start with the small steps, you know, like, hey, let me take this out of my habit. Let me take this out of my habit. And before you know it, you're actually transitioning into, you know, positive habits that are really aligned with the direction of where you want to go. And then, you know, immediately if something enters into your space that is not resonant with that direction. And you be able to curate your life a lot better when you're walking, you know, down that path to, to, to realizing these rather large dreams. You know, so a lot of people get discouraged about, oh, you know, how, how much can I really affect, you know, global warming, you know. But if you actually just take the incremental steps, you never know where that would lead you, um, you know, down the path. Absolutely. You know, and as you were talking, I was, I was listening to my, my mentor Graham Betchard, and he, you know, he always says the statement of, you know, if you want to be an overnight success, it's going to take you 10 years. So, sure, you know, so like you said, get into the moment, get into the process, be patient, you know, live your philosophy every day, be about it, and, and just trust that if you're going into that direction, that, you know, it's, it's going to happen for you, and your game is going to be realized. So, and your game, man, it's you're realizing it right now, and um, and I believe it's it's leading you into to getting your PhD as we speak, correct? Well, you know, I was getting my PhD um, before I actually got accepted into this um, program with NASA called Singularity University, uh, which brought me back to California. So I was actually in the process of of starting up my PhD, and then. I had an opportunity and it was a balance that I had to make a decision on, you know, whether I was going to be in the academic space or I was going to continue to try to be an implementer um, and, and almost bridge the gap between technology and, and solutions. So I chose the latter um, and I, you know, had a really great time at Singularity University. It was about 90 students from around the world that were packed into, you know, we stayed at NASA Ames Research Center for about five months. Um, and we really focused on how do we approach climate change. Um, so I took a lot of the tools that I actually was accumulating from football and the World Education Foundation, and I wanted to apply those in a very real way uh, throughout this program. Um, and that kind of leads me to what I'm doing now. I'm building up this startup called Urban Matrix One, uh, where we're utilizing uh, satellite images, uh, machine learning, and unique data sets to quantify the sustainability for large infrastructure projects um, and to really hone, you know, what, how do we bridge that gap between technology and creating uh, a symbiosis between people, planet, and profit. Um, so, you know, we have enough resources. Uh, we understand that the world is changing. You know, what are we going to do about it? So uh, infrastructure and what we build in this natural world uh, is directly correlated to how uh, the planet operates. So to be able to use these tools uh, in order to uh, quantify what our impact is as humans, um, I think that can actually approach and and hopefully uh, solve some of the the larger issues that we're facing. Wow! Again, playing a big game. <laughs> it's just uh, I'm thank you for actually doing that and stepping up into that space. I think it's awesome. Um, before we actually have another question or two, I just want you to share because I when I first met you and you were 
executing your keynote, you, you brought up what you were getting your PhD in, which was cyborg anthropology. So when I like, yeah. when I sat there, I'm like, what is cyborg anthropology? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> so cyborg anthropology is really um, backed off of looking at the relationship between humans and technology. Um, and, you know, it, it really starts with quantum physics where, you know, for example, uh, Niels Bohr, he had this experiment um, you know, called the split uh, experiment where uh, he shot a photon and he saw that uh, atom actually could be in two places at the same time, whether, you know, it was on one side of the split or the other side of the zip. And what he saw that it was also a wave as well. Um, and but what he didn't do in this experiment was calculate himself in that experiment. Um, so if you fast forward to this woman by the name of Karen Barad, uh, she talks about this concept called new materialism, and it really creates this discursive uh, type of framework where you can start talking about the, the binaries and um, the boundaries between technology and human, and that we try to create them, but as we uh, create them more and more, the more they dissolve. So all that to say is almost as, you know, as we are creating technology, technology is also creating us. You know, I can give you an example. You know, most of us have a cell phone. Um, you know, that cell phone, you would be considered a cyborg. You know, it could also be considered almost like being a child. You know, when uh, it cries, it sends you a notification. You know, when you need to feed it, you got to find a plug to plug it in. Right. You know, if you break it, you got to send it to the emergency room. You know, and if you lose it, you feel like your life is over. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so these relationships that we have to technology are becoming more and more integrated uh, within ourselves, especially when we start talking about artificial intelligence and, you know, automation and self-driving cars and, you know, these devices that we're planting and nanotechnology. Uh, so that's creating our relationship, a relationship that is, is really novel and really uh, expansive. You know, if you were to ask a 14-year-old uh, what a world would look like without Wi-Fi, they probably couldn't tell you, you know. Um, um, you know, and also like MIT, they did a, a study where they looked at, um, you know, children that were going into the first and second grade, um, and they didn't have the motor skills to actually hold a pair of scissors or to hold a pencil because they were so used to swiping iPads, you know, through their toddler years. So their depth perception and their, and their perspective was totally different uh, throughout their uh, cerebral cortex. So, you know, cyborg anthropology is really looking at that, that connection or that intricate connection between technology and, and human. You know, this is, this is actually a real, like, about two days ago, I had a conversation with a really, really close friend of mine, actually another quarterback uh, of mine back in college. And he literally, his adopted, now adopted kids, um, there's one that's fairly young, and there's one that just graduated from high school, and they're definitely they're technology kids. And the oldest one is a gamer; like his games live off of Wi-Fi, and their Wi-Fi <laughs> was down for two days. This has happened just within the last week, and the youngest one l went into a rage. I mean, literally <laughs> crying rage for hours because he couldn't get on the iPad. And mm -hmm. when the oldest one realized that it wasn't going, he wasn't going to be playing games and didn't know when, at 5.30 at night or early evening, 
he ends up shutting down. Like, I mean, his body shut down and he woke mm -hmm. up the next day at noon because he wow. was so depressed that he couldn't mm -hmm. play his game. And I'm like, Oh my, I'm like, this is real. You know, it's like yeah, it's real, real. So definitely, you know, and, and, you know, as we move into these more kind of computer brain uh, interfaces, you know, where we're looking at neural links and, you know, we're trying to get to Mars and, you know, we have all of these, uh, you know, robotics and automation that are moving into the workforce, you know, the horizon of technology and, and, and how it looks and its projections on, you know, work and life and, so, and so, social aspects. Like, just for example, if you look at Pokemon Go, um, you know, this was the first game really um, that moved mass amount of people from the digital space in, in real time in the real world. Um, I remember that there was a couple of counties that actually sued, uh, you know, Pokemon Go, um, you know, for actually destroying their park, um, you know, because there were so many people that were trampling over grass, you know, to find these, you know, these digital simulated uh, Pokemon balls, you know, so it, it's really that there, there hasn't been a lot of research that has been done into this fairly new uh, horizon. You know, I remember when I was growing up, I had a Tandy 3000, you know, and I remember we had to go buy our RAM, you know, from the radio shack or something, <laughs> you know, to, right. to get, you know, 60 more, to get 60 more, you know, kilobytes of, of, of RAM or something, you know, but right. now it's happening so exponentially um, that, uh, you know, there hasn't just been a lot of research around this. And I think that's what really intrigued me. It's like, you know, what are these relationships that we're promoting um, you know, from a technologist standpoint, they just want to create things, you know, but from a societal aspect is, you know, are these things that are created actually good for us, you know, and what are the boundaries and what are the limits on, on these things? Yeah, for sure. Well, I love that. You're, I love you're diving into this and, um, and we need more people doing that. So it's awesome. And I have one more question before we sign off. And again, I, I could talk to you for another hour. Um, when you think about reflecting on your whole life, everything, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Hmm. I really, I really feel like I've, 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 I've learned about myself that I'm blessed, um, that there's powers beyond me that are working in my favor. Um, that, all I have to do is be Marcus, authentically Marcus, um, and things will somehow work out. Um, I felt like, you know, I I found a niche, you know, and I found peace with who I am as a person. Um, and I feel like if I just do the work, um, that good things will continue to happen. Of course, you will go through your struggles. Of course, you will go through things where, you know, you make your mistakes. Uh, but all in all, I feel like they're learning opportunities, and I feel that if I can just continue on that path of being me, that the blessings and the things that opened up for me and the doors that are meant for me, uh, I will find. And the people that will walk into my life will, will show up and they will appear, and I will appreciate the people that are already here uh, that can see me for who I am. Wow, man, I love it. It's um, this This whole interview has been just insightful, eye-opening. Um, you've educated us. You've shared your energy and your love uh, for the game and just for life. And there's just so much that um, 
you you've offered in this past hour and uh so i want to thank you for that thank you for your energy and and just uh and love like you're you're loving what you're doing you you love football and you're sharing your 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 lessons and your your journey and uh, again just thank you so much for being on my show and, and just sharing who you are and it was a pleasure to meet you as well uh, a few weeks back and i really appreciate you having me on your show uh, i really appreciate it grant you bet 